You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 220. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Well, a little tired today, a little uh, late getting to the show today uh, because I just took a very quick trip to Connecticut, went down. Uh, went to my um, niece's third birthday. It's always a, another uh, child's birthday, even though I have no children myself yet. I have all sorts of children in the family. I run back and forth. So I went, went to Connecticut for that, uh, dropped off a gift, said hi, went all the way back, a <laughs> three-hour drive, <laughs> kind, of, kind, of, uh, kind of exhausted, but it's all right. Um, a lot of a lot of cool work that I'm doing this week. Um, first of all, newmap.ai. Um, I kind of want. I don't want to officially announce it yet, but I've talked about this with Aaron on the show for quite uh, a, a little while, and that is the new sort of database slash uh, programming language that I'm building. I'm sort of redesigning how the um, uh, the world of data is going to work from the ground up, and I'm really excited to share it um, with uh, with select people who want to see a demo down the road. Uh, it's going to be I've kind of given myself till July to have a really good like um, you know demo that I could or not a really good demo, just like a demo that I can show people. So I'm holding myself to that. I mean, you know how software projects go. Maybe it's not going to be July, but you know what? There's not there, there's no like organizational problems in my way or anything like organizational as in like, I I don't have a, yeah, I, I don't have a, a marketing department that tells me when I can launch it. I don't have lawyers telling me when I can launch it or, or what I need to do. I don't have, um, you know, uh, work politics. So I, I'm pretty confident that I can uh, estimate this timing uh, pretty effectively. So that's something that I'm looking forward to. Another thing I'm doing this week is a blog post for the paper, uh, the academic paper that I put out on bias corrected, bias correction in machine learning. And I'm just kind of like, you know, I just wrote the paper. It's 13 whole pages in a paper. And now I have to write again? I've got to write a blog post? What, what's going on here? But uh, <laughs> hopefully it makes sense. I think it does make sense because, you know, you need something that's a little bit more informal uh, to introduce people to these ideas. Um and the idea that I'm trying to state is that if you remove some data from a data set, but you're kind of looking at uh, the, the the resulting data is sort of biased towards one area, uh, whether it's, you know, just, oh, I kind of removed uh, more people from this state than that state or this area than that area. If it's marketing data or let's say you're writing a, a, a language model and you're just looking at Wikipedia, well, that's biased because, you know, English does not always look like Wikipedia, but if you train on Wikipedia, it gives you a pretty good idea of what English is. So it's just sort of uh, the idea of you can correct for this bias in a in a principled way. And so hopefully I can write, uh, I can get that blog post out and uh, that'll be good. I'll, uh, I'm not sure where I'm going to put it yet, but uh, I'm sure I will, uh, I'm sure you'll all know about it when I do. Remember to join our locals, maximum.locals.com when you can. And today, we are going to go over uh, a couple things. We're going to go over some tech news. Uh, we're going to go over a blog post from um, um, 
oh my God, who's the blog post from? It's, uh, <laughs> it's the blog post from uh, Andrew Gelman, who is, has been on the show, a friend of the show, about, uh, about these language models, these um, things like GPT-3, which are heralded as you know the smartest thing in existence. Are they really that smart? Well, we'll talk about what the issue is. It's a little bit, uh, how should I say? It's a little bit um, uh, nuanced there. Uh, and then finally, um, I just have kind of a local story from New York City, which is not local to me anymore, but um, something that I care about. And we'll get to that at the end. All right. First of all, tech news. This is really big, I think, or it's just really interesting uh, given everything that we've talked about in the past here. Elon Musk has bought a substantial uh, portion of Twitter, um, almost uh, almost. Uh, 10%, I believe, 7%. Why don't I have that written down here? Anyway, from Bloomberg, Musk's holding in his favorite social media platform was valued at $2.89 billion as of close Friday. So far, he's done well. The billionaire is up more than $1 billion based on Twitter's closing share price on March 14th, the date of the event that triggered the disclosure and its opening trading level on Monday. Even though Musk is now Twitter's biggest shareholder, his holding still represents just a fraction of his overall wealth. Well, that makes sense because he's like one of the wealthiest people in the world. And so, you know, if he owns a fraction of Twitter, it's probably a bigger fraction of Twitter than it is a fraction of his wealth because he's probably worth more than Twitter is (laughs) overall. So he could probably almost buy Twitter. As of Friday, the vast majority of Musk's Net worth was tied to shares and options in Tesla, where he's uh, CEO. He owns about 17% of the electric vehicle maker, which has soared in value in recent years and catapulted Musk to the top of uh, the list of world's richest people. So what, um, what kind of stake uh, has he bought? He's, it's a 9.2% stake. So I should have written that in the notes before. The Tesla CEO, it's a, it's a 9.2% stake. So right, almost 10%. Um, is it enough for him to affect how Twitter is run? Well, not quite. Um, but first of all, let's cover, you know, why is he doing this? Um, because whenever you see a billionaire put all this money into a company, uh, you might think, okay, well, they're doing it because they're trying to uh, they think it's a uh, an opportunity to make a lot of money, and maybe he sees it that way. Um, but if you look at his uh, tweets on on Twitter itself, um, you know it, it kind of suggests that he's interested in a little activism. So first of all, he posted a, um, a a poll on Twitter a few weeks ago saying free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? And of course, you know, it's it's the large majority of people said no. A uh, large majority of his followers or people answering the poll said no. And then he writes in response, having uh, foreseen this result, uh, I'm guessing, he writes, given that Twitter serves as the de facto public town square, Failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? Now, I'm not sure if Twitter 
Uh, well, there's a lot to unpack in that statement about whether Twitter is the de facto public square or not. But uh, the point is, <laughs> Elon Musk thinks it is. Uh, I totally agree with him that Twitter is being run badly. And so it kind of makes you think this might be a case of investor activism. Now, um, I don't think he thinks he's going to lose his shirt on this investment. Uh, one of the things that made this investment easier to make, in my opinion, is that the price has dropped so much on Twitter stock over the last year, even amid inflation, even even though the price of everything is going up, uh, that doesn't include Twitter stock. Twitter stock has been going down. It's down at, um, it, it, you know, it's down in the 30s, maybe $30 a share. And let's see if we could try to figure out, you know, where it peaked over here. I'll just pull up the stock graph, uh, TWTR. If you look at the stock graph, over the last year, okay, it peaked um, in February of 2021 at $77 a share, but that's maybe not fair. Maybe it was averaging around um, you know $60 a share for several months there. Um, remember that was the time of you know the run up to the election where they did a lot of censorship and they did a lot of censorship during COVID, um, and then. Um, you know, it kind of reached both the, the stock reached its peak. And also, I think that the service itself reached its peak too. remember, they lost. Uh, um, they lost Jack Dorsey, uh, as a CEO and replaced him with uh, someone who explicitly says he does not believe in open dialogue and open discussions. Um, I think free speech is, is kind of a misnomer. It's obvious. You know, but for some of you who've been through this discussion a lot of times, I mean, you know, you can't allow every anyone to say whatever they want on on your platform. Um, but you do want to foster in something like Twitter a kind of open discussion, which they have not, including you know censoring stories, news stories that turn out to be true. So if you have you know fact checkers, and it turns out the fact checkers are banning stories that turn out to be true later, uh, that means that um, they're not in the business of fact-checking, especially if they do it again and again and again. So anyway, back to the stock price, um, which I think is is kind of a good barometer for how the company is doing and, and kind of a good um, kind of anchor to help you tell your story. Let's say like in those, uh, in, in 2021, when it, like after it had a year of making those mistakes, it was up at like 60. And I was saying, you know, decentralization before our eyes what episode was that? I keep coming back to that episode. Uh, I knew when I was m making that episode that I would keep coming back to that episode. Uh, decentralization before our eyes. That was episode 153 in January of 2021. Um, okay, so since then, so the price is in the 60s, and then it dropped all the way down to 33, $33. So the, the price of Twitter stock, let's just say it was um, about 50% off. And it's back to where it was, you know, uh, essentially just, just before the start of the pandemic. Um, so Musk is getting in very low. Like he can buy twice as many stock with his dollars as he could uh, several months ago. And so the fact that Twitter is doing so poorly on the, on the stock market <laughs> makes them a lot more vulnerable to someone like Elon Musk to buy up um, all of their stock. Uh, so, all right, um, he still won't be running the company at these levels, um, but 
It does put additional pressure on the board if you have your largest shareholder being publicly critical of what you're doing. And, you know, if he keeps on buying stock, then eventually he will have um, uh, the levels necessary to uh, start having a, a say in this company. Now, the question is, who holds the power over product at Twitter? I mean, on one hand, it's the employees who are doing a lot of this. You have engineers, product managers, and designers. Um, in a startup, a lot of uh, those kinds of products decisions would be in the hands of those types of people, but I suspect not anymore. I suspect now the decision of who's banned, uh, who stays, who gets um, who gets shadow banned, who gets uh, more exposure. That's probably up to the lawyers um, and the people in the trust and safety division, because most of the, uh, the, the 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 former positions that I just mentioned, the engineers, the product managers, the designers, and that sort of things, they have already now that the company is more mature. They have already built all the tools uh, that they needed that can bubble up the, that can essentially bubble up those decisions to those teams because those tools get built up over time. And the current CEO of Twitter clearly uh, likes it that way, where you have this trust and safety division that, um, uh, you know, a team of lawyers and activists that figure out who's going to say what. So you kind of think of Twitter as being run more like, uh, you know, CNN or even Fox News or something. Um in the, in the town square. So then that leaves open the question, well, who's going to change this? Uh, the employees are the ones doing it. Uh, the CEO likes it that way. So, you know, is it almost too difficult to change? Um, and, and apparently the board likes it that way um, as well, the current board. I mean, do they? I don't know. But, you know, they, I'm sure they meet with the CEO. They probably are activists themselves in terms of, um, you know, trying to get their point of view out there. Um, and, you know, put their thumb on the scales when it comes to uh, the open system of Twitter. So, okay, but now you have new owners. Does that mean that eventually, um, down the line, you get a new board, which eventually means that you get a new management team that's hired by the board? But if you think about this, if you think about the corporate governance that goes behind this, this is a long, long process um, in order to reform Twitter, if Twitter is going to be reformed. So don't get too excited uh, if you were hoping for this to be kind of an instantaneous thing. In the meantime, Twitter will continue to lose out to competitors, including decentralized competitors. But if that happens, that makes the stock price go down even more. And then people like Elon Musk can buy up even more of it. And uh, so, I mean, I don't know, maybe um, maybe you have someone on the other side. Maybe you have someone like, you know, uh, uh, George Soros. I'm not bringing up so, uh, George Soros as like a, a, a boogeyman here. I'm just bringing him up as like an example of someone who, on the other side, who might buy it up if it's if it's lower. Or a, maybe maybe a better example would be like a Jeff Bezos or something like that. Kind of a Twitter Amazon amalgamation. I feel like that's a lot of power. Twitter Amazon Washington Post uh, amalgamation. That's a lot of power in in one person. Certainly that could happen. Um, but uh, on the other hand, Jeff Bezos already has a way to get his information out there through the Washington Post. So I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know how this plays out, but it's a very interesting move uh, by Elon Musk. And um, I don't think it changes the long term mechanics of the um, 
the uh, these centralized services being disrupted, but it could be the start of the pressure campaign against them that uh, makes them uh, kind of break and maybe makes them be more reasonable even in the in the medium term. Who knows? Maybe even the short term. All right. Now we're going to get back to these chatbots, and I'm really uh, kind of in a and uh, an enthusiast of chatbots. I haven't spoken to a chatbot in a while. Well, no, that's not true. I talk to Siri all the time. I talk to Alexa all the time. Those are all chatbots. Um, and then, of course, you get like the bad ones online. It's always fun to chat with like a computer science chatbot. Of course, I made one at Foursquare with, uh, with Marsbot. Very, very simple one. Um, but these are often heralded as AI. These are often heralded as something smart because you could chat um, with a machine. And some people enjoy chatting with a machine. Uh, but of course, it's not, uh, it's not that intelligent. Now, GPT-3 has a giant neural network that, backs, uh, that can back question answering systems. And so the idea is that these are just going to get better and better and they're going to uh, evolve super intelligence. But as Andrew Gelman points out uh, in a recent blog post, uh, a lot of the intelligence that we see from these machines and these uh, systems are not as deep as you would hope or you would expect. So I'm just going to read um, some of this, uh, part, part one and part two. Part one was funny output from OpenAI's GPT-3. A few months ago, Smith wrote an AI skeptical article where he threw some sentences at the GPT-3, a text processor from OpenAI, as Wikipedia puts it, Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3, that's the, the full name, is an autoregressive language model that uses deep learning to produce human-like text. It's the third-generation language prediction model in the GPT-N series created by OpenAI, a San Francisco-based artificial intelligence research laboratory. By the way, we've gone through uh, how Elon Musk is involved in, in uh, OpenAI as well. Um, the quality of text generated by GPT-3 is so high that it can be difficult to determine whether or not it was written by a human. Um, and this is kind of not really so true. In Smith's examples, I'll continue, there was no difficulty in telling that GPT-3 was no human. Here's an example. He writes, is it safe to walk downstairs backwards if I close my eyes? GPT-3 responds, yes, there is nothing to worry about. It is safe because the spiral stairs curve outward. It will make your descent uncomfortable. Okay, if you tried to follow that and you got lost, um, it's because it's, 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 it's not really, it's not really someone talking to you. Okay. Smith writes, questions like this are simple for humans living in the real world, but difficult for algorithms residing in math worlds because they literally do not know what any of the words in question mean. Smith continues, I asked the same question three more times and got three authoritative are authoritative, confusing, and contradictory answers. Um, here are some of the answers to the same questions. Okay, to walk down the stairs with your eyes closed backward. GPT-3, that depends. Do you have a TV? GPT-3 says, no, it's not safe. And the fourth time it says, yes, it is safe to walk downstairs backward if you close your eyes. GPT-3 randomizes answers in order to avoid repetition that would give the appearance of a canned script. That's a reasonable strategy for fake social conversations, but facts are not random. It either is or is not safe to walk downstairs backward if I close my eyes. Um, I would actually 
dispute that, but you know, it's it could be safe if you have like you know someone spotting you and you're um, you know d- do it but anyway. Uh, let's uh, <laughs> let's the the point is obviously GPT three has no idea what they're talking about um, and it's making stuff up. Of course, Smith gave a few more examples. Suppose GPT three produces something that sounds like human conversation. Sometimes not. Just for fun, here's another example. Smith writes, why is there a correlation between the number of times Trump tweets the word great and the high temperature in Pyongyang three days later? GPT-3 writes, North Korea is heavily reliant on foreign trade and its domestic industries are badly in need of improvement. Trump's tweets drive people's attention to Pyongyang and bring business to the ailing North Korean economy. Again, that makes no sense And I know you're picturing in your mind a Trump tweet, which, of course, there's no Trump tweets anymore because he's not on Twitter because of the Trust and Safety Administration. And then you picture him tweeting and then you think people are thinking about North Korea and then somehow they're going there and buying stuff or buying stuff online, which, of course, really doesn't happen. It's not really connected to the world economy. And then there's businesses opening up. Yeah, no, none of this... GPT-3 doesn't mean for us to have any of those images in our mind. This is just taking um, things that are written elsewhere, you know, like, oh, like, you know, bring business to the economy, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure it's seen, it's been trained on lots and lots of texts that are talking this way and just kind of puts them together in a Frankenstein-like fashion to produce this statistically created text, Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way. I'm not saying there's no use for GPT-3, but let's, well, I think I'm going to get to it after I finish reading here. Um, What's a good way to think about what's going on here? So I'm just going to continue with the article. Um, That one almost sounds good until you realize the question was about the temperature in Pyongyang, and the response has nothing to do with the temperature at all. Props to the model from going from Pyongyang to North Korea, but still no dice. Okay. So, yes, again, it it can associate words with other words. If it couldn't associate a word like Pyongyang with a word like North Korea, uh, then it would be completely useless. Because, I mean, the positive thing is you are getting images in your mind when you read uh, these, or you you are getting kind of an idea of, of, uh, of a thought when you read these things, even though it's artificially, um, it's kind of giving you a thought artificially. Um, because it's word salad, because um, machine learning models and the neural nets that they're running on are very good at associating words with other words. So it's not um, it's not particularly surprising that they would uh, associate Pyongyang with North Korea, but um, it's also not very impressive either. Okay, and then the second part, he's got five parts. I'm only going to read the first two parts. The second part is big claims about Google's Lambda system and why I don't trust them. Uh, So this is Google's, um, this is just kind of a corollary about Google's uh, kind of super smart chat interface. Um, Smith also quoted Blase Aguera y Arcas, the head of Google's AI group in Seattle, who wrote a press release style article extolling Lambda Google's state-of-the-art large language model chatbot. Aguera Iarcus 
shares some awesome conversations he had with Lambda, but I don't believe it. It's not that I think he's lying, but I suspect he's done some combination of special training of the algorithm to get it to answer his questions, along with some serious editing of the computer output. I twice put out a call to the Google team to show some untrained and unlabeled Lambda output, and they did not reply. Not that they have any responsibility to reply. After all, they're busy doing research and writing press releases. But if they're not going to do a reproducible demo, I don't see what I can do with their claims. And this reminds me of an episode that we did a while back when... Um, it was before all the, the, the chaos at Google. Um, and I'm trying to remember when it was, but it was sort of like, I remember Google had a, um, a demo of a, uh, of, of assistance that would call with a human voice using like ums and ahs. And it would sound like a natural human voice that would call and ask for the time, uh, ask for like the opening hours. And, you know, have you, have, have I gotten a call from a machine like that? Maybe I have. I don't know. Maybe you have. Um, but um, also, I suspect that the underlying technology was not as good as the uh, as the demo. Or, and this is legitimate. Maybe they were just designing it for a very specific purpose, like to ask someone to um, schedule something. Maybe that's possible. Although, it would take a, a lot to you know. If I were going to press a button on my calendar and have Google call up you know, um, call up the person who I want an appointment with, if, if it were someplace you're supposed to call up, um, rather than just, you know, hooking together your Google calendars, maybe it's just like a store or something, and when are you going to come in? And um, if Google calls ahead and has that conversation, and then writes down, yeah, I verified that, um, do you trust that? Do you trust that the conversation works? And I think, it, I think we would trust it after we've seen it work again and again and again. It's kind of like, the Amazon stores, the Amazon Go stores, you know, it's like, I can just um, take whatever I want from the store, leave, and a- Amazon.com, I'll just go on later on and, and the app, and it'll, it'll show me what I have and, and charge me the, for the correct things. How does it know what I took? What if I kind of like swipe it from the shelf or sort of like, you know, what, what if it thinks that I'm taking something that I didn't take? And it's going to charge a lot. I mean, these are all questions going through your head when you're using it until you realize how well it works. And then you're like, oh, sweet, this is awesome. I could just go into this store, swipe some items, leave, don't even have to go to the cash register. And it's like, it's almost like stealing, of course, here. <laughs> it feels like stealing. But uh, yeah, it's kind of awesome. But you're, you're, of course, paying for it. But once you see that it works, and it builds trust, then, uh, then, then you use it. And I haven't seen um, a system that has built trust on um, question answering yet. You know, people don't, if you put your question into Google, people don't trust that Google's going to answer it right away. That's because it creates, requires, you know, super intelligence. So it's very difficult to do. Um, okay, so what's going on here? Um, more specifically, because if you want to read the whole blog post, I'll post it on the show notes page at localmaxradio.com slash 220. Uh, basically, there's more and more examples we've revealed, and some of these examples are quite funny. Um, so I'm just going to, um, you know, basically what happened was the testers began to see that their queries were being fixed. You know, they'd write something, they'd get a nonsense answer, and then they'd go back the next day and write something, and then it was fixed. And so that led them to, 
um, conclude that there were humans in the loop. In other words, there were a bunch of testers asking questions. The machine didn't answer very well. But then those questions and the response the machine gave go to a human overnight and gets distributed out. The human tells the machine what types of things the machine can answer, and then it comes back the next day, and then the machine is better able to answer that. Now, is that legit? Is that wrong? Is that illegitimate? No. Um, most of our knowledge, especially uh, language knowledge, comes from other humans. And also, I wish that a lot of other companies did this. I wish, you know, have how many times have you sat through a very annoying, you know, phone uh, tree where it's not giving you the things that you need, or you're trying to, it says, why don't you just ask me for what you want? And then you do, and then it doesn't give you what you want. What if, um, what if those things were constantly being fixed by, by humans and then coming back and getting better and better? I think uh, it would prevent a lot of frustrating situations in the long run. And so this is how to train something. And again, most of our knowledge as humans come from other humans. Um, some of it comes from, you know, personal experiences dealing with the physical world other than humans and our senses. But, you know, especially language model, all of it comes from other humans because it's our way of, of communicating with other humans. But it does illustrate two ways in which some of the so-called super smart AI fail, uh, falls short, which maybe leads to some ideas for ways to fix it or, um, or you know, some, some uh, market opportunity. But one is there's no real natural language understanding. We talk about wanting natural language understanding. We talked about it on the show. But um, really what you have here in these systems is only the beginning of natural language understanding that's being learned in the neural net. Um, maybe the neural net can learn more. I personally, with NumaP AI, I hope in the future I'm trying to explore solutions that'll make NLU knowledge explicit. So in other words, I imagine you have a mix of a database of potential word meaning, like what the machine thinks the dictionary is, with some statistical knowledge in a neural net. So, you know, you can, um, in other words, mix explicit meaning with, you know, internal statistical knowledge and constantly upgrade both. Uh, one benefit of that is you can go into the system and see what the machine thinks a word means, which is always very helpful, um, and then correct that if need be at the source rather than trying to learn it through supervised learning through example, which is also a good way to do it. But sometimes, you know, in, we talk about machine learning as learning through example, but you don't always learn through example. Sometimes you learn by people telling you facts, uh, which, and then trying to um, abstract out those facts, the general idea, which is, uh, you know, which, which would make a much more powerful machine. Um, and two, and this is a problem mentioned in the blog post, these machines, uh, these algorithms have no real world experience. I mean, how can you? How can a machine have real world experience to know what it's like to walk uh, backward with your eyes closed down the stairs? And so a better question is, how can you make up for this? That's going to be really difficult. Um, the only way I can think of is, you know, you got to, instead of just relying on text, you have to combine lots of media uh, plus experiences, you know, but the, the richness of human experience is really hard to make up. And I suspect that it's not going to be very cost effective to attempt to do that. Um, perhaps it's better to build intelligent machines that are good at what machines are good at rather than trying to copy humans. But um, that's uh, uh, th that's what I think about this. And, you know, 
I I think these are amazing amazing projects. I think they show a lot of promise. I would like to see more um, more content about like what these things are useful for that are not just hype. Um, but uh, I, I think there's a lot of innovation that can come from this. So um, anyway, it, it um, Gelman points out at the end that uh, he changed the name of his post. I'm just going to read it. So the above post was misleading. I originally titled it OpenAI Gets GPT-3 to Work by Hiring an Army of Humans to Fix GPT's Bad Answer. I changed it to, and by the way, that was the good eye-catching uh, title. I think you should have kept it. But c- continuing, I changed it to Interesting Questions Involving the Mix of Humans and Computer Algorithms in OpenAI's GPT-3 program. Uh, I appreciate all the helpful comments. Stochastic algorithms are hard to understand, especially when they include tuning parameters. Okay, so not going to get into tuning parameters, but basically... The idea is there's a lot of humans in the loop. Now, there's a lot of, again, coming back to what I said before, there's a lot of humans in the loop in human intelligence. If you ask me a question and then I phone a friend, you're going to say I'm not intelligent because I phoned a friend. But um, in order for these machines to be hyped as, you know, being close to human level intelligence, they have to have some understanding of what they're saying. And they haven't demonstrated that as of now. Okay, final story. And this is just for me. This is so there's a place in Brooklyn that I used to go to all the time. I'd still go there. It's called Defara's Pizza. It's down in Midwood, uh, Avenue J, 15th Street. Best pizza I've ever had. I always bring all my friends there. Uh, the owner, um, Dom DeMarco, uh, he passed away at the age of 85 recently. How often does a pizza shop owner get an obituary in both the New York Post? and the New York Times. He influenced a lot of other places in New York City. Key paragraph here from the Post, DeMarco emigrated from Provincia di Caserta in Italy in 1959 and wasted no time opening the original Defara pizza by 1965. As their reputation soared, Defara was later dubbed New York's best slice by chef Anthony Bourdain. I kind of want to skip the next name, which is Mayor de Blasio, and others, including the Post. Tourists to the storied pizza joint have been known to wait hours for a bite and chance to catch a glimpse of a legendary Dom at work. Defara's pizza's impact stretched far beyond the five boroughs as Hollywood A-listers and other influential people made a point of paying them a visit over the years. Now, fortunately, I never had to wait hours, but I definitely probably overall had to wait like an hour because not wait, but like it took me a while to get down there. Like it took me 30 minutes to get down there. You gotta walk there and then you gotta wait for your pizza to come out. But, um, it was great. Like he would come out and, uh, you know, snip the, um, uh, uh, snip the basil. So you had like fresh basil right on your pizza and then he'd like put the oil on and it just tasted incredible. And no one has really been able to, um, uh, to, uh, to, to replicate that. Now, Defara's, even without him, is still pretty good. I suspect it's not exactly the same, but I'll, of course, still go there. Um, and, you know, they mentioned his daughter who, um, who kind of runs the place now and who's, who's, who's there all the time. And so I, I also remember, um, I was so excited. I think this was in like um, 2012 or 2014, somewhere around there, where I was able to stick the Foursquare sticker right on the window of DeFaris Pizza. They let me to do it, and it stayed up there for a very long time. And uh, I was like, yes, we got uh, we got DeFaris. This is the best place. Uh, so 
Um, I tried actually going last time I was in New York to DeFaris Pizza, but, uh, you know, it turned out I was, you know, a little too busy in those two days. But uh, maybe next time, um, incredible, incredible pizza. Maybe sometime we'll do a whole, well, I don't know if you guys would be interested in this, but I could do a whole ranking on New York pizza places. There's one pizza place that I like where I know the owners didn't like Defar when I mentioned Defar is in there. They're like, shut your mouth while you're in this place. No, I don't they didn't say it like that, but they're like, <laughs> they're not that great. Um, and I, uh, but that, I think that was Totano's. I think they're really good too, the place in Coney Island. Maybe one day, if you guys are interested, if you're good, or maybe, you know what, this will be kind of a, a locals discussion for those of you who join the locals at maximum.locals.com. I'll uh, rank my New York pizza places. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll save that for another time. All right. Next week, uh, once again, we're on kind of an AI um, marathon here at the local maximum. Comes in waves, comes in waves. Next week, we're going to talk about AI and emotion. Can you use AI to uh, understand, or, or machine learning and statistical models as well, to understand human emotion, to mimic human emotion, to try to, you know, when you're communicating with a human, try to, you know, use it to uh, understand that human and improve communications. Very interesting idea. Also, not without being, it's a little scary as well, um, if, if a machine can do that. Um, but um, I'm talking to, uh, to, to an expert who spent a lot of time studying this issue. So um, get ready for that next week in episode 221. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.